save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, with my guest Ashwell Glasson, we're going to touch on Zimbabwe and what the interim and future may hold with a change in leadership, and the ongoing dilemma of the captured wildlife for export to China, the wild-caught young elephants and other species, the rhino from South Africa, and try to get a better understanding of what transpired versus what the future may bring as it relates to Zimbabwe's cash flow in trading live wildlife. Then we're going to segue on and take a journey over to Mozambique and some tales uh, from the field and the rangers. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back Ashwell Glasson. Hello. Thanks very much. It's really great to be back with our wild world and be back in the mode of having a good uh, chin wag, as we say, about wildlife and what's happening down this uh, end of the world as well. Thank Absol- you, Ellie. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. It's great talking with you, Ashwell, because we get a real tangible feeling of what's going on now and what you and I have been talking about this conservation update. I think we're at 10.0 now instead of conservation 2.0 and the and the dire need for everybody to get on board and do things differently. Absolutely. Uh uh um, if we kick off with Zimbabwe it's it's def- it's really been an interesting now, month or so, uh, in terms of just the whole picture there. So tell us what's going on. We heard from Johnny Rodriguez, and he filled us in that there is a current crop, terrible language to use, I know, but um, 40 young wild-caught baby elephants that are destined for China, and the rumor that I'm hearing is they're probably going to be exported somewhere around Christmas. Some lions have gone, some hyena and some giraffe. And then there's also in undisclosed locations in China, a couple of rhino farms. So when you and I talked the last time, we talked about this is more elephants and rhino that can, that can possibly be going into zoos in China. So why don't we start with the Zim side, because you're so familiar with the cash flow and the economics of this in, in, in terms of fi- financials and debt. And then um, maybe what's going on in China with their own ideas of raising wildlife and what that means. Uh, brilliant. Well, with what we've seen uh, in the last few weeks with uh, Zimbabwe and probably the much-anticipated change that was coming uh, with the government and uh, ZANU-PF and the politics of everything. The decisions around the, the coup and uh, what happened to Robert Mugabe, as many of us knew, was long in the planning. And one of the things with many military coups where the coup leader is really in touch with what needs to happen in the first six months of a revised regime, let's call it a changed government, is to secure the interest of its strategic partners. And we all know that China, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, has a very strong presence and footprint in its operations in Zimbabwe. So that's the the first key thing is understand that China's there, it has a footprint, it has its citizens working, operating businesses, and has an interest from minerals right through to wildlife. If we move on from there and we consider the timeline that has emerged even in the open social media with uh, the general uh, Chimanga's uh, travel and his maneuvers, let's call it not just military manoeuvres, but political manoeuvres, many of us, and of course this is not substantiated and probably will be in some debrief in 30 years' time, declassified debrief, we had a feeling that he cut a deal. And the deal was that he guaranteed China's continued access 
to all the contracted agreements, including wildlife. So that meant the last few years, we've seen elephants going in and out of Zimbabwe to China with other wildlife as well, to basically these mega zoos, uh, which we'll get to uh, in China, in the PRC, and uh, establishing the, the founding stock of what we would call zoos, but they may actually call a viable breeding businesses that can return, provide them a return on investment for things like ivory, rhino, horn, uh, leopard, lion skins, pangolins, um, even uh, medicinal parts from hyenas, etc. Almost an accepted view of how China is trading with Zim right now. So let's just stay here for one second because this is where social media really starts getting on top of things, tweet storms, all of this to try and stop the pretty much done deal of these current 40 elephants and other wildlife. So we've established Mm. that China is going to probably create their own stock. And what this does is brings in the CITES rulings um, of international trade, you know, trade bans. So by having Mm. their own population within China, they circumvent uh, some of these CITES rulings and uh, that deal with domestic trade, right? Absolutely. The The biggest challenge with CITES is that it relies on an established scientific authority as well as a management authority in the voluntary commitments from the various countries. So in a case uh, where there's a military coup, which has occurred in Zimbabwe, people kind of look around at each other and go, okay, uh, now we don't have a government and that minister and that minister who may have been in charge of CITES obligations is now gone. So the gap that is created in the political governance system provides opportunities for others to capitalize on a variety of things. And in the terms of Zimbabwe, the big thing is cash flow. They have to demonstrate that they are now going to be worthy potentially of a World Bank or more likely uh, international monetary fund emergency loan facility loan. And in the last seven days, an IMF team has been in Harare already discussing those issues to see if Zimbabwe can is willing to meet certain obligations, of course, from the international community and remain committed to those obligations in the short term so they can get the kind of uh, big dollar or euro um, emergency loan to re-kickstart their economy. So and you can the, kind of… their economy isn't necessarily about funding wildlife conservation at this point. No. Uh, we know historically Zimbabwe has always been called one of the bread basket countries of Africa from its production of maize right through to the tobacco industry that at one point even challenged the dominance of other countries like the States and other places that were producing large amounts of um, tobacco. And, of course, uh, Zimbabwe's very long heritage in uh, professional hunting and wildlife, which predates Zim itself. It, it goes back to Cecil John Rhodes, we even pre-Rhodesian era and British colonial too. So um, a, a, a quick restart of the economy could include very quick returns on moving uh, wildlife and other uh, assets out of the country to others that are willing to Uh, bank cash very quickly and get it back into the country, which would make sense. If I was a brand new president, I must admit, uh, I'd also be considering, well, how do I pay my civil servants and kind of keep things ticking over until I can get the the big magic uh, loan or kickstart? So it is important at this time to take care of the Zimbabwean people who have always gotten the short end of the stick for the past 37 years as Mugabe sort of sequestered a lot of the uh, the cash, the flow, and uh, 
let's say, absconded with it or took it out of the country. And then his, um, what do you want to call it, severance package, I understand is quite a bit of money. So in some ways, listeners, this makes sense, as upsetting as it is to hear that these there's not much we can do at this point in time about these baby elephants. And if you go back and listen to Johnny, uh, previous episodes, this was a deal that started with China, a debt deal that started in 2012 and um, was a, a deal for 200 elephants. So it's getting close to that number. So what's going to be interesting to find out is what the future holds. And um, as Ashwell's just been explaining to us, how to get a cash flow back into the country, which does include legal wildlife sales, uh, both domestically and under CITES in, in some rulings. And then it turns into this what is going to happen to this wildlife in China, and it becomes a breeding population. So it's going to be interesting to keep track of and uh, what goes on in the news. So um, in terms of in Zimbabwean people right now and this new government, how are things um, filtering out? Well, right now, uh, and even uh, uh, in the last three months, I've been, I've had the pleasure of spending some time with um, uh, some Zimbabwean civil servants and others who, from the wildlife end of things, who, of course, uh, have been living purely off the the donor environment, don- donations from various organisations just to pay their their basic salaries. So. Uh, and to survive. In other words, feed their kids. And these are amazing people um, trying to do their thing to make sure that Zimbabwe's wildlife remains intact. When the coup happened, many of them went quiet. And, of course, they were worried, as as we noticed, the military um, factions took over the notorious Central Intelligence Organization in Zimbabwe. A deal was done. So somebody obviously said, okay, we will side with the military, you guys, and we won't stop you or try and intimidate you from stopping the president, securing what we all know is the the blue roof or blue house palace in the Harare presidential district, which opened up the whole whole thing and why Mugabe was caught off guard and a whole lot of his ministers, some of which we still haven't heard from um, and have not been in any public appearances. So there is a little bit of concern on the side that um, some of those individuals could have been dealt with in a (laughs) a certain fashion and everything. So the military very quickly assumed control, knew exactly where certain individuals were at the same time, had made those decisions with the backing of China. So I'm sticking my neck out. So there's already Mugabe kind of, no matter what people say about his um, uh, sen- senility or whoever, whoever in his government had the feeling that the coup was coming and the cards had been placed, uh, played or the dice had been rolled. And this was the first time that there was a clear break and that's why for many of us in the wildlife environment, conservation environment, we knew this was for real because there was no going back from a gobby. You could never trust the military or any of the paramilitary um, uh, forces, including Zimparks and others that carry firearms and protect um, assets in his country. It was over from that point because he would never be able to control them. So we all knew that game was a done deal and why many of us felt very confident that Ngangwa was or whoever was going to be in in the short term. So there's a lot to pay attention to here moving forward in terms of uh, the touch and go situation that Ashwell just explained in Zimbabwe right now. And um, it is still ZANU-PF, right? But yes. It, it's, so, it's, a, it's a changed ZANU-PF? Yes, that, I mean, there, we, we know there's wrangling going on internally. Um, the usual power plays that you'd expect in any political party 
uh, where there's um, uh, ministerial or secretary general or director general roles being reallocated. Uh, and uh, a good example is when um, uh, Aung San Yi came in uh, to Myanmar in terms of its democracy and how they cleared out their military troika and military dictatorship. They had to pre-select key individuals to take up certain um Offices uh, and and ministries and those kind of things. So, from a wildlife perspective, uh, we're obviously really hoping that the awful situation of exporting um, Zimbabwe wildlife is reconsidered, and that Zimparks gets a proper national treasury allocation, which um, Robert Mugabe cut, pretty much leaving most people working for Zimparks uh, without a salary or any support. Hence, why there were abuses of their system. Wow, lots to keep track of. Thank you, Ashwell. That was a, a great assimilation of information so our listeners have a better idea of what's going on over there and how to best use our activism and social media to look at what's going on in the future, where we can best put our efforts, and then as we touched on briefly, um, get a little more on board with animal welfare on the Chinese side and keep track of what China is doing with wildlife, rhinohorn and ivory, as it is geared up to close its commercial ivory markets um, by the end of this year. A lot's already been closed down, but it changes the picture a little bit when you realize they have their own rhino and they have this elephant population that they're breeding mm. up. So kind of a sticky wicket that needs to st- we need to stay on top of. So at this point, we're going to take a little break and uh, with my guest, Ashwell Glasson, and we're going to be right back. So stick with us because we've got some good news to talk about of what's going on elsewhere around uh, South, South and Southern Africa. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie, our wild world, and Ashwell Glasson. During our first section, we got a much better understanding of the background that's in play in Zimbabwe's shift. And as Ashwell is saying, this may not be exactly what Zimbabwe wants to do in terms of exporting wildlife uh, to China, but it was a done deal. We have to pay attention to that moving forward and keep our eyes on the ball in terms of the future and put our activism and our social media to work and pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes. Ashwell, that was a, a great uh, summary of what's been going on. So we know there's some good news going on in Zimbabwe and we've got some bad things that are going to continue for a bit. Let's go into some good news. We were talking and you said you had some great news coming out of Mozambique and what's going on in the, the field over there. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> Mozambique is, uh, for some, has always been a bit of an, an anomaly in terms of wildlife and conservation. and Their national conservation agency is putting huge effort in under the the stewardship of they call their national administrator dr bartholomew uh, soto and uh, dr soto is pushing a very strong wildlife conservation agenda opening up and when i say opening up developing parks and particularly one that's uh, kind of come out in the media a bit as a nav in which he's been able to uh, enlist the help of the peace parks foundation in getting animals back not just from other countries but repopulating it and it's been an amazing thing to see to see the the focus and discipline and recognition that ecotourism and wildlife conservation can work together in Mozambique. This is uh, off the back, we all know of an extensive civil war history in Mozambique. And that civil war history often was at the expense of uh, wildlife. We know, we've seen, let's call them freedom fighters or non-state civil war organizations engaging in poaching at a mass scale to be able to purchase weapons, support their operations, and etc. And Mozambique is now defying that trend. It has turned the corner and is really trying very hard to make sure that whatever national parks it has become viable and that they can pay for themselves and be Awesome places to visit. How does this relate to the um, the border where the poaching has been so intense uh, with Kruger? Okay, so the combined three national parks, uh, which is called the Greater Limpopo Transfrontier Conservation Area, which can, combines Gonorrhea Zone, Zimbabwe, Limpopo National Park from Mozambique, and the Kruger National Park in South Africa, um, is a massive region in excess of 4 million hectares in size. And, of course, there are challenges in the sense that the Kruger side has a very high density of elephants, and there's been a growth of elephant poaching and the ongoing battle with uh, rhino horn. Uh, and rhino poaching. On the Mozambican side, it's a more developmental thing where it's about bringing wildlife back, making it accessible, allowing tourists in, and then cooperation. And cooperation has been the big big thing. Uh, There's a region called the Masangia of the Limpopo National Park where we know many uh, Mozambican poachers make a gap for it once they've poached. Uh, and head that way. But there is a true trilateral, I suppose if you want to use that term, uh, agreement, working agreement on a daily basis now happening between the three countries. And uh, I think, I stand to be corrected, and it's a terrible statistic, but in the last four or three years, over 500 poachers have been shot and killed, and the bulk of them are Mozambican. So the Mozambican government is now paying attention 
to that. They're paying attention to the reality of how do we get our people in those parks? Because in Mozambique, there are many people living within the parks. It's not uh, fortress conservation like South Africa where most people, legacy of apartheid and other things have been pushed out. This is encouraging that uh, Mozambique is um, heading in a different direction and looking after its people and hopefully removing some of this pressure to take these ultimate risks and crossing over into Kruger and poaching rhino. So this is mm. an important thing to stay on top of as well. And hopefully a lot of the militarized gearing up of anti-poaching there um, on both sides of that border, will uh, that thin green line will get thicker as uh, Mozambicans get treated better by their own country and that wildlife conservation becomes more of a priority. So this mm. is very encouraging news. Where would you like to take this next? Um, we can relate it back to what's going on in terms of international wildlife trade, or we can mm. bring it back to what's going on and the uh, partnership, so to speak, of this trilateral uh, agreement and how that's going to affect what's going on in South Africa. Well, it it's a very interesting question because uh, if we take a helicopter or eagle's eagle eyes view and step back, if we consider South Africa improving its own challenges in conservation, number one, then we we see Mozambique. Uh, doing its version, and of course poverty is uh, extreme in Mozambique, but if it has quick gains uh, in establishing park infrastructure and also creating community park and conservation partnerships, which is ultimately what all of us really know will turn the tide in any form of poaching, and, and then we look at our cousin a little bit further south, Swaziland, uh, and the Lobombo Transfrontier Conservation Area, the Lobombo region of those mountains, we take Zimbabwe and then we include Mozambique. What you end up having is four strengthening countries in the subcontinent. And instead of South Africa trying to hold its own in conservation, Zimbabwe is strengthening its conservation, even though, yes, we acknowledge done deals have to be cleared out and be done before it can redefine its destiny. And, of course, Mozambique is working on its version. And if we then say Swaziland is working on its version, and, of course, the long-standing um, uh, best practice version, which is Botswana. Now you've got Botswana, Zim, South Africa, Mozambique, and Swaziland. It changes the dynamic in the Southern African Development Community region um, and releases some pressure off the whole value chain. Uh, and particularly, getting back to your point, in illegal wildlife trade, it becomes harder uh, for our um, Southeast Asian cousins to create havoc because uh, the institutions that looking after conservation are stronger. And of course, that is always a more difficult thing. And I always relate uh, the how I feel about it is if anybody remembers the Marshall Plan after World War II, uh, Secretary Marshall mobilized resources to rebuild Europe. Uh, we could have a similar version, but for conservation in the subcontinent, in the SADC region, off the, the strength of existing good practice. And I really think we can have a Marshall Plan for conservation here, which would then make um, things a bit more difficult for our cousins uh, in Southeast Asia. This is very encouraging news. So um, folks out there, you know, things are shifting. It may not look like it's happening as fast as we'd like on the surface, but by understanding the pieces, parts that are at play behind the scenes to um, better be able to figure out where to put our efforts as the global community and um, as, you know, individual countries as, as they rebuild themselves. It's going to take some time. Um, 2017 was a rough year. So um, 
maybe I'll just throw in here, how does this or does it have anything to do with South Africa's um, desire and legalization of domestic rhino horn trade and the captive uh, lion business? I understand uh, FAZA has stepped away from support of SAPA, South African Predators Association, and this um, lion bone export to Asia. How does this all sort of fit together? Well, uh, FASA, uh, there are links. I think uh, FASA's made up its own mind about things. And I can confidently say, um, and it's in the social media as well as public domain, there's been a counter move, which is often uh, the case. Uh, It's taken a while to arrive, but there's now a confederation of concerned professional hunters in South Africa that are completely against canned uh, lion hunting and captive breeding of large predators. And uh, you can pick it up on uh, Facebook and various social media. They've already, in the last 48 hours, um, established themselves as an NGO or NPO and have begun their pushback against their ex-colleagues uh, in the professional uh, hunting association. So there's a bit of um, <laughs> tension in the system, which is good. I'm, uh, I think uh, from previous episodes, everybody knows I'm fairly pragmatic, but I'm a policy-focused individual, and I think it's good that there's some tension breaking up the, the current dominance of some of the players and uh, there is no value in a captive breeding of large predators, particularly multi-generational um, captive breeding of large predators and anywhere in the world. Uh, you can't, if you release them back into wild populations, you have all sorts of um, secondary and primary issues of genetic weaknesses, dilution, disease. Uh, and in fact, your point earlier, Ellie, a very critical point in terms of animal welfare, uh, <laughs> it's just a no-go. And hence why, although South Africa is a bit schizophrenic about trade and big predators and hunting, the one thing we do know is that you can't mix the two together. You can't, you can't do that. It, uh, inevitably, you, you run into immense problems. So even if you're only interested in finance, it will cost you a small fortune to sort it out. And that's why so many of the hunting types that do these short-term four to seven day big cat can line hunting things do it very quickly uh, very very far behind scenes get the client in and out and wham bam and excuse the expression thank you ma'am um yeah uh, there's no conservation value in in that practice so in saying that do you think this will help shut down the spin-off businesses lion uh, cub petting, voluntourism of raising orphans, the shifting around of lions into captive camps and tourists visiting that and sometimes getting paying the ultimate price and getting killed and uh, sort of with Faza's move away from this to sort of close off the captive uh, breeding into it, something that is, we've talked about before, uh, the the shame version of it that and that there's no conservation value to this and then the second point would be what kind of pressure do we think that's going to put on the wild lion population and wild rhino off to the side if there's no captive lions to be taken uh that latter part is unfortunately the hard part um in any industry, and it sounds terrible, you've got captive lion breeders that are at the top of their game. They know how to breed lions. They know how to churn out cubs like no tomorrow. They know how to do it, and they do it well. Then you've got others, like any industry, that are impatient, don't have the skill, but want the money. So they will bait lions out of the Kruger and other protected areas, break fences open, and draw lions out. Um, as an example, and there are examples of that, and some have been caught. So, as usual, this industry has 
varying levels of complicit uh, individuals and organizations that are doing this kind of uh, thing. So that's a very difficult thing. What I do think, though, is that the, the campaign from Cecil right through to Bloodlines and even earlier, the work that others have done from Cape Pepper Trust to various bodies um, involved in the predator question and the predator question with welfare and hunting um, have begun the process of deterrence. Many of these cub petting type environments and centers have slowly but surely been shut down uh, and all have kind of had to uh, reconsider their, their business models like the lion uh, park in Johannesburg and those kind of things. And of course they've had people die there. So <laughs> that's, right. that, that's an obvious, that's an obvious problem when you think you on top of behavioral, behavioral um, issues and things like that. And of course it didn't work and they've paid the price for it um, as well. So, so once yes. again, things are shifting. It's happening slowly, but it is shifting. So that that's the point of this program here and speaking to folks who have an understanding, like Ashwell, of what goes on behind the scenes. So all of these issues that were highlighted over the past from 2016 to 2017 and got the world in an uproar, they are having an effect. And once again, it does tell us where we can focus our efforts, which is once again, saving the wild. And if we have good, strong, wild populations of rhino, elephant, and lion, then we can shut down these captive things, leaving China aside for a minute for another conversation. But um, helping South Africa to change its brand, so to speak, and um, shut yes. down some of these more unpo globally unpopular due to public pressure uh, of industrialized semi-wild life so at this point we have to take another little break so stick with us because we're going to come back with some more good news of what's going on in south africa so we're connecting all the dots for you here folks so stick with us and we'll be right back Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie, our wild world, and my guest, Ashwell Glasson. So what we're trying to do here today is connect some of the larger dots of what's going on behind the scenes. And um, in the end, it is a positive or at least encouraging picture for the future. Ashwell, help us understand a little bit more the three key organizations or associations that are at play here and what's been transpiring, OPA, FAZA, and SAPA. Okay, so uh, OPA, the Organization uh, of Professional Hunting Associations of Africa, has um, kind of uh, ostracized or said to FASA, which is the Professional Hunting Association of South Africa, that they are persona non grata. In other words, no longer recognized as a professional entity uh, for African professional hunting and that uh, they That's a very not. big deal. Yes. Okay. So OPA, which represents multiple countries in Africa and has a fair amount of standing globally, is turned around. And they turned around within 48 hours of the FASA decision two weeks ago. That OPA responded very quickly and essentially said to South Africa and the Professional Hunters Association, FASA, you're out of line. We don't accept the proposals and agreements that you have made around canline hunting. In hunting language, the, there's the concept or definition of um, the rules of fair chase. Uh, so high fence shooting and firing from a vehicle and uh, drugging animals and keeping, um, uh, let's say, in this case, of course, a lions. A canned lion basically is in a very small area, guaranteeing the the paying hunter from wherever in the world uh, a kill. That's with why very they call it canned hunting. It's in the can or bagged. Exactly. So OPA and the Namibian. Uh, a professional hunting association uh, told FASA in no uncertain terms that they are not welcome, uh, whatever that means for FASA. And, of course, it raises questions for the rest of us um, who are involved in in saying, look, hunting is a history in Africa. Many of us don't agree with it, maybe, or we do, or we don't, but it must be done on an ethical basis where whatever you do, the animal you choose to hunt has a fair chance of survival and, of course, has a fair chance of killing you. If you have any form of skill and any form of respect for wildlife and then you choose to hunt and kill uh, a wild animal, you need to do it on the basis of your skills, your ethics and, of course, your attitude. And that's essentially what it's gotten down to is that Africa has turned to Fars and said, that thing, that ethical basis is not there. We no longer see that amongst you as professional hunters. So it's quite a, quite a smack in the face. And I know there's been lots of maneuvering uh, to try and counter the hit. And I think even America itself there are, and other countries, Germany, America, and uh, France, Italy, some of the big hunting countries, Russia, there's been a bit of pushback for FASA. And the United which, States. Yep. And people are saying, hmm, wait a minute, uh, this what you've decided. And what it really equates to is, is the decision is that whatever government says is in South Africa, South African government says is okay to hunt, that is ethical for us. So we all know including America and everywhere, legislation is then generally produced or passed through Congress or parliaments on the basis of minimum needs. In other words, that will meet what the vote is asking for on a minimum basis. And I know that sounds a bit confusing, but when you determine things like line bone trade and other 
things that may relate to hunting, those are minimum requirements. And what FARS has actually said is that they are fine with minimum, possibly unethical or, yeah, unethical requirements. So what OPA did here is, in terms of lions, they changed the ruling of the time between a captive bred lion, um, I think it, sometimes it was four hours or a couple of days, and then you know I think technically it was 30 days. They changed that time to something more like three or four months that that lion has has the ability to rewild itself before it can be hunted exactly. to follow up with what you were saying, fair chase um, in skill of hunting and the ability of the animal to um, survive. Exactly, and we all know that lions are almost impossible to rewild in the true sense if they are captive bred. If they've been fed, uh, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably will take several years to get a lion who's been captive bred, probably been petted as a cub, as you mentioned earlier, to the point later as an adult or sub-adult to be able to hunt and be a functional lion. And that is always and is still the, the Achilles heel of lions that are raised in these awful captive situations. There's just no value because each lion will take probably take two or three million dollars of hard work to be able to get it to be a functional lion like it's cousins who have grown up and been raised in the wild in a pride situation where there are, are vastly different dynamics at play. And that's why all of this nonsense is absolutely nonsense. It's rubbish uh, uh, that these, these cub petting uh, type scenarios, all they're doing is uh, producing uh, uh, a tinned or canned lion in the future and uh, keeping a young volunteer happy that he or she has stroked a lion and had her dream fulfilled. And I know that sounds terrible the way I've said it, but I mean, that's that's what it gets to. That's what it sort of comes down to. It's, it's an unethical thing. Once a business model, once people understand uh, what's going on, that um, this shift between OPA, FASA and SAPA, uh, it does bring up two pretty critical points. A, the, expense to raise captive lions and if they have to keep them until hunting age and then another three or four months of rewilding or at least getting acclimated to being in the wild and not being fed that changes the business model of captive breeding the hunters wanting to choose a lion and sort of bank on it and come back in four years to kill it and then the pressure of land, of where are they going to put these lions to, quote-unquote, rewild them or give them a fair chance. So that, mm. that puts a lot of change on those two factors of raising lions. It's expensive. And then, no, it's and then where ex- do they go? Well, it's very expensive. And for many of us that have been discussing this question, um, and you highlighted it brilliantly earlier, it is – If we ask the animal welfare question, uh, essentially, and this is a terrible thing to say, you would have to put down a population of 3,000 captive bred lions because there's no ways you could rewild them all and get them back into reserves in South Africa. And I'm speaking for South Africa. There isn't enough protected area acreage or hectare in our language to absorb all those captive bred lions. So you essentially have to euthanize the bulk of them. Um, And that is the deal. And of course, this links now (laughs) to the lion bone trade, where uh, being able to trade lion bones into Asia is now the viable option for those that lose out on the hunting side of canned lions. At least if they're going to, uh, murder or kill, oh, that was a strong word. If they kill their their own lions that they've bred, they have an option to process the lion carcass and uh, move that bone on into the Asian market and earn some income there. So that is the other connecting link for 
um, the line boat trade uh, quota as well, which is obviously of a concern because it creates the gap and in a way maybe a strategy for captive line breeders to still earn some kind of income off their, their, their lion stock. And I know I'm almost talking like a farmer when I say things like stock and all right. of that, but it, it's not my view. Um, uh, it, it really isn't. But when we try and understand it, we can see the, the links where uh, people need to make the cash back. And, of course, um, perhaps if we get a moment, we'll talk about the zoos in China and those kind of things as well and how it all relates. Um, and, and it does. This is um, very important what we're talking about right now in terms of linking back to what we started in the beginning of China and Zimbabwe and all this wildlife going to China, China building up its own stock, and um, they've been importing lions as well. So it sort of goes back to the tiger farming that uh, fed their own tiger trade, and now they've been bringing in lion bones to offset that because the Asians don't really want captive. They want the chi of the wild spirit. So we've got a catch-22 here, and it brings in an animal welfare model of what is China going to do with this African wildlife population they're breeding up. And then how South Africa is going to kind of lose out. Um, and it might not look good for the short term for these 3,000 lions. But if they can't be afforded, uh, if the South African farmers, lion farmers, can't financially afford to keep these lions, there's going to be a lot of lions that are either going to get shipped overseas or killed in the short term until this closes down. And then we're looking at how we turn our focus to the wild populations and then look at what China's doing in terms of welfare for both. Absolutely. And that and that's the that's the tricky thing. What what many people tend to forget that China has its own huge internal domestic tourism market. And there is a massive growth in the middle income and upper income groups that can afford to buy relatively large tracts of land still in China. Overall, what we're seeing with zoological gardens in China, the language is deceptive. And uh, he has a little hint and warning for American tourists going to China. If you go and visit one of those places uh, you're likely to see tons of pandas in um, pens and things like that, and they roll around and be cute and all of that. What you can also expect, that they will be expanded and that we will see zoological gardens uh, in brackets, if you want to use that term, including a range of species that have immediate return either through ticket sales which is traditional for zoos across the world or zoological gardens but also on um, growth related products so tigers producing cubs uh, lions um, producing cubs rhino growing horn at a, at a five centimeter rates per annum, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, behind the scenes in these zoological gardens, you have a secondary set of income opportunities. And if you can get your tourists to pay to come and view and go, oh, that panda's cute, and wow, that African white rhinoceros is immensely beautiful, and oh, I remember my grandfather telling me uh, how awesome it was to be able to get a carved rhino horn uh, soup bowl uh, etc behind the scenes is the question the front end we all accept the europeans have paid their price also for zoos and things like that and animal welfare behind the scenes in china is where there are many uh, people building opportunities organizations building opportunities because why a, it's their own law enforcement. There's no CITES. Once they're in, they can report on numbers. And, of course, because CITES is still voluntary, and if we really think about it, even CITES itself is not likely to sanction the People's Republic of China. So 
more more zoological gardens with these range of exotic and wonderful African and you know from pangolins and even South American mammals, etc., that are kept alive and may have uh, certain parts of their bodies harvest on a regular basis. Meanwhile, in China themselves, they are actually doing harvesting and supplying the domestic market on domestic market rules. So that is a big concern. And many this, of us have thought about that. Yeah, this is a big catch-22 with all the um, work we've done, advocacy work to shift the African model and trophy hunting and you know, canned and industrialized wildlife to keep it wild in Africa. China has shifted it uh, while we weren't looking to be able to process it all itself from cradle to grave to medicinal use all all with it in country. That's- exactly. And that is exactly the, the point that uh, of concern for many of us is that once you allow the trade – Um, of the live animals to move to those countries. You lose control over the species and you lose control over some of the value of um, how those species are then processed. Because uh, think about it like this. Even if uh, a zoo in China, for example, uh, had a white rhino from South Africa and eventually that rhino hit 50 and died of natural causes, all of us would be asking question. Well, where's that horn gone? Is it sitting in a safe in China because uh, that's the ethical thing to do? Was it burnt or was it processed? And that's only at its point of natural death. What oh. we're not necessarily seeing is through its life cycle of when it's continuously growing as horn. And we also know the pressure on African elephant ivory um, is not because. Asian elephants are massively depleted. Um, the common thing that's not always understood is that African elephants have much larger ivory than Asian elephants. So your return on investment in poaching an African elephant is generally higher than an Asian elephant. And wow. even when you move it through the value chain of from syndicate member to syndicate member at uh, Dar es Salaam, to uh, um, somewhere maybe in uh, Malaysia or India or stop over quickly in uh, Yangon in Myanmar and then finally across the border into um, Laos or Cambodia, it's still worth their while because Asian elephants have have much smaller ivory tusks versus African. At the peak, if you take a peak ivory... uh, tusk from an Asian elephant and compare it to an African elephant, they're worlds apart. Uh, That's why all the trophies uh, for elephant, if you drop African and Asian out of the word, are all African elephants because some of them can produce massive uh, 90-pound plus tusks. What we've learned here today is our focus needs to shift. So with all the encouraging news that is happening on the African continent, in all this movement of wildlife in a globalized, shifting world, uh, we have to continue the pressure and uh, stay up on top of what's happening in the countries that are starting to bring in uh, species from elsewhere. We still have our work cut out for us, and um, we'll see what happens at the next uh, COP uh, con- uh, meeting of parties, convention of parties in Sri Lanka. And uh, lots to lobby for. But unfortunately, we're out of time today, Ashwell. So we're going to have to reconnect and follow up because there's a lot of other good things going on. But uh, today, I just want to thank you for helping uh, connect all these dots for us. Absolute pleasure. And it's, it's a pleasure to be of service to your listeners and everybody uh, it's a cause really worth fighting for. And remember, wherever you spend your dollar on trips to Asia, just um, keep an eye on how you spend that dollar. Uh, that's my kind of quick advice. Absolutely. And, you know, that line goes for everything. You know, in a consumer-driven world, the consumer dollar is critical. So where we spend it is 
will change the flow of what we see being consumed. So that's it for today. Meanwhile, uh, step out into our wild world and see what's going on out there and do what you can do. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thank you.